Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Thank you, everybody. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Last time we looked at how God reveals his name, and as we continue in this passage, we're going to look at how God reveals his nature through revealing his name. At the end of the Ecclesiastes series, I quoted part of a poem from the 19th century entitled The Hound of Heaven about God's persistent pursuit of sinners. When C.S. Lewis was looking for a way to describe how God came after him as the atheist that he was, he referenced that hound of heaven and Chesterton and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and others also talked about that poem, The Hound of Heaven. You know, as my father-in-law often says, there won't be any good people in heaven. Do you understand what my father-in-law means when he says that? You know, when you witness to people sometimes, you'll say, uh, why should God let you into heaven? And the number one answer people give is because I'm a good person. The reality is you're not. You're a sinner before a holy God. So that's why my my father-in-law says that because the only kind of people that will be in heaven are sinners saved by God's grace who have turned to him for salvation. They've been forgiven of their sin. And so that's why I often say, if you provide the sinner, he'll provide the Savior. And I wanted to read you some more of that poem. It's a long poem. We're just reading a couple stanzas of it by Francis Thomas Thompson all the way back in 1893. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase, An unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. I hope that resonates with your heart as it does with mine about God's pursuit of me. The Bible tells us Christ loved us even while we were yet his enemies that he died for us while we wanted nothing to do with him. Sometimes we talk about being seekers. The reality is we're not seeking anything but our own ease and our own sense of entitlements and those different things. We think we're, uh, God should let us go to heaven just because we're good people. And the Bible comes along and says, no, you're rebels against a holy God who deserve his, if we got what we deserved, we would get all get judgment. And yet to this 
to us in that situation, God comes and convicts us of our sin, tries to show us what Christ did for us, and bids us to come to know him, always with that unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, overshadowing, being around us, wooing us to himself, and it's so beautiful. Now, let me recap where we're at. Last week, we began looking at God's dealings with man, and we covered from Genesis 1 to Exodus 33, kind of an overview. We saw some of how God's plan for the ages has unfolded, and we saw a recurring pattern, whether it was the simple commands given to Adam and Eve or the few more that were then given to Noah and the people at the Tower of Babel or then God's call to Abraham and then the raising up of Moses and giving the people the Ten Commands. Whatever commands he gave, people were called to trust God and obey him for God's glory. And then we saw mankind's sinful failure and the necessity of divine judgment. But then we saw hope revealed and people repenting and God giving a big mercy and grace reset. In Exodus 32, we saw the people that God had brought out of Egypt. They had been given the Ten Commands. Moses had gone up on the mountain to spend some more time with God. And we saw in Exodus 32, the people while he was gone says, we don't know where Moses is. We don't know if he's coming back. Let's go ahead and make ourselves an idol like the ones we had back in Egypt. And let's call that our God and worship it. And hey, let's add in, uh, you know, Moses was talking to us about don't commit adultery, but let's add in the idolatry and the immorality that goes along with that. The fun stuff from back in the Egyptian days, uh, even though we were slaves back there. And so they did that. And that rightfully made God angry. God said, Moses, you've got to get on back down there. The people that you brought out, just like a husband and wife talking, God said to Moses, the people you brought out of Egypt. <laughs> God, didn't you bring them out of Egypt? No, you brought them out. And uh, they've sinned against me, and I need you to go down there. After that failure, it's so critical what's going back and forth in Exodus chapter 32 and 33. You might want to read them since we're going to spend a few weeks in this Exodus 34. But God put Moses through a series of tests. God came to Moses and he said, Moses, they've sinned so badly, forget them. I'll start over with you. And Moses declined, but he pled for God to forgive and restore. I believe that was a test God had given and Moses passed it uh, to have the heart for the people like God did. Moses, I will get you and your people to the promised land, that will fulfill my promise to Abraham, but I won't go with you because if I go with you, I'm a holy God. They'll be sinning all the time. I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to judge them all the time. Moses interceded and said, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, forget about it. We are nothing without you. So Moses passed another test. He said, God, we need your presence or we're nothing. That's the only thing that'll make this doable. It's the only thing that'll separate us from all these ones that don't know you. If you don't go with us, there's no power to do what you've commanded us to do. And so uh, we know we're stiff-necked. We know we've sinned. And Lord, but, but don't give up on us. Don't give up on us. Moses passed that test. Something was happening during these encounters with God. If you ever take the time to go through Henry Blackaby's experience with experiencing God, he says that God is pursuing a relationship with each and every one of us that's real and personal. And as we 
uh, as we grow in our relationship with him, we also grow in our understanding of who he is and our experience of him. We come to rely on him and we are growing toward future challenges we're going to have. Uh, sometimes I liken it to uh, the, the, the video game Mario Brothers. You know, you run into a lot of believers who are constantly saying, I don't understand why things are so hard as I live this Christian life. It's so much harder now than when I was first a believer. This is tough and that's tough. And they don't see that that's what happens with growth, right? You can be an all-star in Little League Baseball, but when you're 30 and you're good enough, hopefully you're playing in the major leagues. They're throwing 100 miles an hour. You're not hitting the ball off a tee anymore. But you've been rewarded and you've got new opportunities. That's what happens in Mario Brothers, doesn't it? What's your reward for conquering World 1 Level 1? You get the next toughest challenge, right? Well, as the worlds and the levels come, things come at you faster, they come at you harder, and you've been growing so you can meet that challenge, and in the game, you're getting to the point where you can save the princess. In Mario Brothers, you can take a shortcut right to the end through one of the hacks, but that's not how life works. There are some necessary challenges you need to face along the way. They're going to develop your character into the man or woman that God has for you to be to face the things coming. And what God wants to do is he wants to be in every bit of that with you. He doesn't want to send you. He wants to go with you, but you need to ask. Lord, I need your presence with me or we're nothing. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, when we uh, stopped probably a few, uh, a few years back, we just kind of... Uh, Praying for God's presence got off the prayer list. And Kathy, let's go ahead and put God's presence back on the prayer list for every week. Because if you look from bulletins in the 2000s and even before that, uh, every week the first item was praying for God's presence here at the tabernacle as God meets us where we are and takes us to where we want to be. He wants us to be with all the challenges that means coming. God was growing Moses. And so Exodus 33:11 says, God spoke to Moses face to face. And that means that by demonstrating his commitment to God, Moses now got to speak to God openly and honestly, just like two friends do. One of the main benefits of believers seeking to live holy lives, God is always inviting us closer. He doesn't just want us to be, know him as creator and we're the created ones. He doesn't just want us to know him as lawgiver and we're the governed ones. He doesn't want us to know him just as savior and we're the redeemed. He says, I'm your father. Jesus is our eldest brother, and I'm your friend. Jesus, I don't just call you servants. I could do that because technically you're servants of me. I'm the one who redeemed you and bought you out of sin slavery into my glory. But I want to call you my friend. I want you to come closer. I want you to know me more. That's one of the main benefits of believers seeking to live holy lives. And when God came to Moses, Moses said, Please, Lord, show me your glory. And in Exodus 33, 19, it says, And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And that's what's happening in Exodus 34. And so let's read it again like we did last week. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. <laughs> Be ready by the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. 
Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. The holiness would be too much and people would be tempted to run in after their animals and they'd die. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He said, my goodness is going to pass before you and I'm going to proclaim your name. So enveloped in God's goodness in that moment, Yahweh told Moses how he wanted Moses and people after to remember God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you're reading the CSB, it says faithful love there. King James is probably loving kindness or mercy. Um, but every time the ESV translated, it uses these words steadfast love and that was a good decision because it's one of the most important words in all of the Old Testament and the whole Bible. But that's what we'll look at next week. And abounding in faithfulness, many times it's translated truth. Keeping steadfast love, he uses that word twice, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is, unless somebody changes the narrative by turning to God. Our sin has consequences generationally until somebody says, we're going to be different now. I'm going to seek the Lord where my ancestors didn't. My parents lied about stuff. I'm going to be a truth teller. My ancestors were consumed by lust and had affairs and all the different kind of stuff. I'm going to be a man or woman who seeks after God's own heart and is pure. Somebody's got to change it. It can change with you and your generation. It can affect thousands or you can stay in the sin and it affect the next and the next and the next generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For even though it's a stiff-necked people, please pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. God reveals his nature. Let's pray. Thank you so much for the precious word of God. Thank you for your dealings with men and women throughout the ages, Lord. Thank you that in the Bible, every time somebody encounters you, they learn more about themselves, they learn more about you, and the relationship grows. Lord, I pray that each and every person in here will prioritize our relationship with you. You want to be known. You want to be known in biblically defined ways. And Lord, we have had a hodgepodge of things we put together that we believe about you. Many of them don't square with the truth of the word. And so as you give them to us, Lord God, I pray that we will form our faith and our lives around these precious truths. Thank you so much for revealing your nature to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I have three goals for this series, this little series we're doing uh, up till Thanksgiving. First, I want you to be able to say the name given here. Let's put it up here, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I'm going to say truth, even though the ESV says faithfulness there keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who, by, who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I want you to be able sometime during the week to be able in your mind to put all those together. So as we get into the holiday season, I want you to be able to think, okay, I know that Yahweh's told me who he is. He said, I'm the Lord. I'm a God who's merciful and I am gracious. I am slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love and truth. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but I will not by no means clear the guilty, visiting, and we go from there. I want you to be able to have that in your mind as you go through life, that God is holy, just, and righteous. That's what it means that he'll by no means clear those who don't repent, but his heart is to forgive, and so if you do, he has a basis he can do that with. My second goal is for you during this time to grow in your awareness of how God wants you to think of him when it matters during the highs and lows of every week. It's one thing for you to remember that God said he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. It's another thing for you when the pressure's on to having received God's mercy and grace to be merciful and gracious towards somebody else and because God's been slow to anger with you for you to then be, as James 1 says, quick to listen, so to speak, Quick to listen, wait a second, let me get this right. <laughs> Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, which of course brings it back here because our anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Okay, dyslexic moment there. And my third goal is for you to grow in your personal relationship with God and experience of his presence and goodness in your life. He wants you to be enveloped in the sense of who he is and his goodness. And sometimes we say it, you know, but uh, you got to get it down. If you don't believe that God, God's goodness is there for you and that he has a great purpose and plan for your life, if you believe he's holding out on you or that you'll be better off when you choose your way rather than his, everything God does for you and he commands you to do for him goes back to his good, good, good plan for your life, his goodness. And you'll always be better off when you choose what he wants rather than what you think you need to do if it's sinful. Amen? Amen. Okay. So last week we looked at those first two things, merciful and gracious. And I've been thinking of those things all week long. Anybody else have those come into your mind during the week? I hope they did. And I hope that slow to anger comes into your mind this week. Because that's the next thing that Yahweh tells us who he is. He's slow to anger. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Not only is he merciful and gracious, but he's slow to anger. And it's so fascinating how the Old Testament Hebrew, the Hebrew puts together words and you go, wow, so that's kind of what the words mean. And from that, they always talked about patience and forbearance and being slow to anger or angry. Yeah, let me tell you about these two words that give us slow to anger. The word for slow is araik, which only occurs 16 times. It literally means long-pinioned or long-winged like an eagle. So first, it talks about these long, and that comes across as slow when you put it together with angry, but this long wings, these pinions of God. The word for anger is af, which occurs 269 times, so quite a bit, which literally means nostril or nose or face. God is 
slow to show you. It's going to take a while for you to see God's displeasure in his face towards you is kind of what happens when you put them together. It's so fascinating. I kind of think about, uh, as I thought about this this week, God soars above mankind in a thoughtful, deliberate, and overshadowing way. He could deal with sin at any moment, but hasty anger can't be seen in his face, in his nostrils as they flare up. Have you ever seen someone's face when they're angry? It often turns red, and they furrow their brow. They cross their arms, and noises come out of their mouth and nose. Some people pace about back and forth and they cup their hands together and they, they hit their head and then angry words and actions follow. Uh, I remember when uh, our oldest was a lad, one of his friends said, I wish you were my dad. He said that to me. And our son said, you haven't seen him when he's angry. <laughs> it's our middle son's birthday today and I think he was the one that discovered, hey, daddy's tell when he's angry is he furrows those brows, you know. Sometimes just hints of the smile are still there, but he furrows the, the brow, you know, and it's a dead giveaway. God doesn't show anger on his face like this guy did. That's Tommy Lasorda, the legendary coach. It's baseball playoff time. Here's the umpire throwing him out. <laughs> and they're both uh, showing anger in different ways. <laughs> I should have gotten Billy Martin as part of this when he used to put the, you know, used to throw the, kick the dirt up on the officials and things like that. Lasorda probably did some of that too. So not like that. God doesn't show it like this guy. The bull. <laughs> Tom's going to get it now, isn't he? There you go. Does this look like you when you're angry? The furrowed eyebrow, the red cheeks, the clenched teeth, I forgot to say that, the clenched teeth, quick short breath, heart racing, tight, tense, hot body, and crossed arms. You say, that's how my dad was, that's how I am sometimes too. And we're quick to show our anger. God wants us to know he's not quick to show his anger. He is slow to anger. He's slow to come at you with that kind of uh, anger and wrath. As God reveals his name in our passage, he wants us to know that he's not like we often are. He's not hasty to exercise his rightful anger at sin. He is thoughtful. He's deliberate. He judges sin, but never in sinful anger like we do. And that's why I love the concept of the long wings, the eagle soaring above it all. You know, an eagle can drop and get their prey at any moment, but they're just taking it all in and they'll do it when it's right but they're just up there like that. And the Bible projects that with the words it uses to show that God is, is, is long-suffering, right? The long wings, long-suffering with us. He's patient, he forbears. But you know, all this brings up a question. Why should God be angry at all? Especially since we've seen so many examples of humans with um, bad examples of anger and acting, you know, the Bible says be angry and sin not. Most of us are angry and sin a lot, you know, and so we're so often, you know, used to seeing the same ones that can praise the Lord on Sunday going off sometime during the week at a situation at work or as they coach or as they're with uh, uh, their um, kids or something like that. Why should God be angry at all? Well, the Bible's very clear, and it's in our text here. It's because of human sin. Verse 7 says that God will forgive iniquity, 
transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. He says, okay, I'm telling you what my heart is for you. It's mercy. It's grace. It's being slow to anger. It's being abounding in steadfast love. I do everything according to my truth. I want to forgive you, and I will if you repent and, 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 and you know, believe, but I by no means clear the guilty. The sin has to be dealt with. I believe, I've told you, I believe the main theme of the Bible is the glory of God. God is glorified throughout the Bible. He's glorified in creation. He's glorified in sustaining things. He is glorified when repentant sinners turn to him and he can save them based on what Christ did for us. But he will also be glorified through the judgment of unrepentant sinners who remain rebels against heaven. So he will get the glory due his name, as Psalm 90 says, as the, as the reverence of you is due so the wrath of you will extract that glory deficit we all have as we put ourselves and our ways above what God wants for us and for our lives. Here we learn that God is slow to anger as he deals with human sin and rebellion. And this passage tells us in the context of his people Israel, his chosen people Israel, that they were going to be able to think about this name. Remember last week, if you were here, we looked and we saw how many examples there were of later Israel saying basically all these names back to God because they had remembered them the way I want you to remember them. And then what did we do at the end? We went to Jonah chapter 4. And it may happen so quick there toward the end of the service that you didn't catch it, but... Jonah did not want to preach the gospel to the Assyrians. He hated them. He wanted what could be true for Israel as they turned to God not to be true for those wicked people that had persecuted God's people. And um, so he said, Lord, I didn't want to share with them because I know what you're like. And then he uses some of these same words, and he basically says, I knew if they would repent, the wicked ones repented, they could get in on promises you made to your people. And aren't you glad we stand under this new covenant time where God's grace goes out to Jew and Gentiles alike, and we can all turn to Christ and experience his forgiveness rather than the wrath due our sins. Are you excited about that? Amen. Amen. One of my favorite chapters is Ezekiel 18 talks about a father, a son, and a grandchild. And they started with this proverb that uh, Israel was saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on age. We talk about crack babies, right? Mama did crack and that's why I'm like this, you know? All the different stuff. And God tells them, listen, the father have eaten grapes, they've drank a lot of wine, the children's teeth are set on edge. They're like crack babies, they're sin babies. The father sinned, we sin because our father sinned. And God starts the chapter by saying, tell the people of Israel not to say that anymore. Don't say that proverb anymore. Don't blame your parents. And then he goes through this cycle of things. And he says, basically, the soul that sins will die. He says, if there's a father who's righteous and has an unrighteous child, the father's still okay, the child needs to repent. Then he says, suppose that unrighteous one turns to the Lord. And the unrighteous child has a righteous son. The righteous son won't have any hit against him because of the unrighteousness of his dad. And so on and so forth down the... And then at the end of the chapter, that great chapter, Ezekiel 18, God says this about himself. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Instead, I wish everybody would turn to me and live.
What a God. What a God. I have to judge sin, but I'd rather show you my mercy and grace. But that leads to another question. Why does God take sin so seriously? Do you understand why he has to take sin so seriously? Do you understand for God to be God, there can't be any unrighteousness in him at all? There can't be any injustice in him at all. He has to, or he wouldn't be, he has to take sin seriously or wouldn't be a holy, just, and righteous God. He can't just be 90% just and righteous. Most of us are a mixed bag, you know. We try to do a lot of good things and then some awful things are part of our story also, you know, and we're thankful for God's forgiveness. God can't just be 95% just and righteous. He can't just be 99% just and righteous. Folks, he can't even be 99.99% just and righteous. God has to deal with all sin or he's not 100% holy, just, and righteous. Here's the good news. <laughs> he has and, has and will deal with all sin through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At the moment of salvation, all the wrath due the sinner's sin is transferred to Christ and what he did on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to save everyone who's ever lived, but it's efficient to save only those who repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Christ. Exodus 34 says it by saying, I want to forgive your iniquity, transgression, and sin, but I'll by no means clear the guilty. Well, everybody that's in the forgiven category was also in the guilty category, right? But a transfer has happened. But what about for those the transfer hasn't happened for? That's where the great white throne judgment described in Revelation 20 comes in and the necessity of the lake of fire which God created for the devil and his angels but will be the place of every rebellious sinner who never turns to God for forgiveness. I hope you've had the opportunity before to talk to Muslims about their faith. I, I think you ought to sometime... Um, your faith can handle it. Sometime, get a Quran. Uh, it, it's only supposed to be read in Arabic, but they went ahead and translated it into English, and you can find those. Um, it's a quick read. Read it and make some observations about it so you can talk to any Muslim friends you ever have. Every one of the surahs, the chapters of the Quran, open with the plea that Allah will be merciful but doesn't give him any reason to be merciful as those chapters unfold. And in the several good conversations I've had with Muslims before, one involving, uh, one turning to Christ for salvation, um, I, I, I've said, I, I know you guys reject the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't believe Jesus died on the cross, but can I tell you why that's so dear to me? And they've said yes. And because most of the time they've never really understood what Christians are saying in that. You know, they believe, they're the religion that believes all people are good, and if you do the right things, uh, that uh, you have a scales, and if you do more good things than bad things, you'll be okay. And then the uh, 
more militant among them came along over the centuries and said, since you know you can't, let me give you a shortcut, and that's where dying for Allah and getting all the virgins in paradise came in, uh, you know, kind of thing. But uh, so there's a plea for Allah to be merciful, but no basis for him to be merciful. And we can use the analogy that if you were in a court of law and somebody had stolen a million dollars from you, and you were coming to the court to get your justice, the person still had it, they could give it back. If the judge came in that day and said, you know, I'm feeling very merciful today, so I'm just gonna let this guy off. What would you scream out? That's unfair, right? Suppose you were, didn't have a, a dog in the a hunt, so to speak, dog in the fight, so to speak. Suppose that you were just watching this unfold and you saw that that person was getting away with it. You'd still say it's unfair. Guess what? The Bible calls Satan the accuser. He says, God, if you forgive Danny Campbell, you're not fair because he really did all that stuff. He really was a defiant rebel toward you. He really has been a person just taking up space rather than blessing the world in Jesus' name. And God says, well, I've got Danny covered. And the reason is because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Many of you at one time or another went out witnessing and you learned Romans 3.23. Our Awana children probably learn it too. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, it is just, you know, if you can get people there, take them a little bit further. In fact, just for the sake of this exercise, let's start back up in verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the fairness of God have been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction. Verse 23, the one you learned or need to learn, should learn, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at what verse 24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Say, as a gift. Justified as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward, God the Father put forward God the Son as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, a substitute by his blood. You are the one that should have been experiencing God's wrath toward your sin. Instead, Jesus stepped forward and took the punishment for you to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. How does it show God's righteousness? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be both just, because he has dealt with a sin, it's gonna be judged at the great white throne and the lake of fire if you don't turn to Christ, but if you do, it was taken care of by Christ that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Don't miss verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Say it is excluded. It is excluded. It is excluded. You can't boast about being a good person and that's why God's letting you go to heaven because you're really a sinner who can only be saved by God's grace. Now listen, it matters to the world that you're a good person who tries to do good things. I don't want to be around people doing bad things and Christ is the ultimate example of how to live a beautiful life that is always 
about others and helping them. We want you to do that. We want you to do it around the tabernacle. We want you to do it around the community. But if you're trusting in your own goodness for heaven, no good people get to heaven. Only one there, Christ himself. How does that apply to the word slow to anger, Pastor Danny? Well, I'm glad you asked. See, our God has a John 3.16 filter for this world. The triune God's John 3.16 filter allows God to be slow to anger because it makes it possible for God to show both mercy and grace to unworthy sinners who repent, believe in, and follow him. Amen? I want you all to avoid the mistake that's often made in churches and among Christians. And that's thinking that God the Father is angry all the time and God the Son is loving all the time and God the Holy Spirit, well, he must just serve as a referee between them all the time, something like that. That there's an umpire and, and God the Father's angry and Jesus is able, please, Dad, don't be angry, you know, and those things. What does John 3.16 teach? It says that God the Father so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus. We can conclude from that that God the Son so loved the world that he embraced coming to the world on this ultimate rescue mission. And God the Spirit so loved the world that he came to convict sinners of their sin and get them to turn to Jesus for salvation. Guess what, folks? It was decided in heaven before the foundation of the world. It was timelessly achieved at the cross and it was applied to you the very moment you realized you were a sinner and turned to Jesus Christ and realized that at the cross, God's love and justice intersect. And ever since you've been seeing at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am joyful all the day. Happy, not so much. That's about circumstances, but joyful because Christ saved me. Yes, 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 yes. Can I get an amen? amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. That's why on the cross, Jesus said, To tell us die. It is finished. They used to write that on bills of sale to say, Paid in full. It is finished. What was finished? Everything it would take for sorry sinners like you and me to go to heaven instead of hell. And so don't ever forget the amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We like to talk about the grace. Don't forget you're a wretch apart from Christ. Doesn't mean you do all the bad things you could, but it does mean you understand that apart from God's mercies, you're consumed. And he can be slow to anger with you because he's got a John 3:16 filter. In the Old Testament, they would bring sacrifices to temporarily cover their sin. They were expressing faith in God, and it was like when you use a, uh, use a credit card. When you use a credit card, <laughs> the payment still has to be made, right? But you immediately take home the benefits, and they got certain benefits by faith in God in the Old Testament, looking forward to him and his Messiah coming. And all we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. Since Jesus came and said to tell us died is finished, he rose, went back to heaven. We live in the reality of New Testament faith and it's more like a debit card. When you use your debit card, it takes it out of the funds that are already there. Guess what? The funds necessary to forgive you are already there because of what Christ has done. 
Because of John's, God's John 3.16 filter, he doesn't need to express anger like we do because to repentant believers, he can say, my son is going to take care of that, of that for you. That's what he could say in the Old Testament. Now he can say, to tell us die. It is finished. My dad and I had a sweet moment a few months ago. I don't know what it was. We just had about an hour. The whole family was in celebrating his 80th birthday on his 81st birthday time, two months after his birthday time. But we got to do it. You know, finally all got together. And uh, man, we had a time there. We just kind of came, came clean about things we hadn't admitted to going back to childhood and stuff, things we hadn't talked about. It was very therapeutic and healing. I hope you would get a chance like that with some of your family members. Um, I finally admitted to my sister that yes, I did smash up all her rock and roll albums after I became a Christian in my zeal to be done with the devil's music. She knew I had. Best to finally fess up to it, you know. And we had a good laugh about that and tears flowed. With my dad, we talked about something we'd never talked about. I, I was, you know, you know, dyslexic, hyperactive, uh, better whether I was 11 or 12, that's enough confession. I, I just had some problems, and, and uh, you know, our home was tough, so home life made the problems worse. I don't know why I did it, but one day I went behind um, our house, uh, and I took um, some shears, and I cut wires of electricity going into, uh, from the, from the um, air conditioning unit and stuff. I should have been fried on the spot. I should have died right there. I don't know why I did it. When dad came home, my dad was quick to anger. I thought he was gonna kill me. And here I am, this very hard, difficult child, you know, with problems. And uh, dad, when he saw what I had done, grabbed me and held me. for what seemed like eternity. He was just so glad I hadn't killed myself doing that. It was dumb, even sinful what I had done. It was stupid. And yet all dad could think about was how glad he was that it hadn't killed me. And we finally got to have a good time talking about that 40 years later. Well, 45 years later. I expected his anger, but I got his embrace and his love. And with everything inside me, I want to tell you that's what God is like for you. Yes, you've done the dumb, sinful stuff. And yes, what you deserve is his wrath. And he says, by no means will I clear the guilty. If you never repent, I have to judge it. But I have no pleasure in doing that. And I wanted you to be able to be with me so much, I went ahead and I came to you. God the Son came to earth, lived the perfect life we all fall short of, and he died as that substitute for you so you could feel God's embrace rather than his judgment. That's what God wants to know about you today. He is slow to anger. 
He's giving you every opportunity to repent. And we need to look at one more passage that says that before we prepare our hearts for communion. Romans chapter 2. Do you get it? Do you get it? That's what we rejoice in every time we take communion, folks. And if you're here today and don't know the Lord, why not today? He's been so patient. You've heard so many messages. Or maybe it's your first one. Hey, that same nitwitty Danny Campbell at 10 or 11 years old at 17 heard the gospel and embraced it the very first day. And you can too. Romans 2. Verses 2 to 5. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Here's the verse for you, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's why he's slow to anger, so you've got time to turn to him before you die and then all that awaits is judgment. But because of your hard and impenitent, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You don't have to do that. The one who believes has life, John 3.36 says. But the one who does not believe will not see life. Instead, God's wrath remains on them. Bow your heads, please. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.